0: that's what she said that's what she said that's what she said that's what she said well that's what she said welcome
1: to that's what she said conversations with interesting people from the world of sports music comedy and more talking about their lives careers successes and failures hey everybody sarah here just wanted to give you a heads up this podcast was a day late if you were paying attention to that sort of thing, because I, I have some great podcasts coming up for you. Adam Pally, the comedian and actor, uh, SNL cast member, Heidi Gardner. I've got some great stuff in the can that's going to be coming up in the next couple of weeks, but it just didn't feel right to run it this week uh, with all that's going on. I wanted to have a meaningful conversation with someone much smarter and more informed than, than I am. And I wanted to bring it to you guys and hopefully you'll engage with it and listen to it. It's not preachy, I don't think. It's not angry. It's uh, it's hopefully a real honest conversation about uh, what we need to do to change things and, and make it so that what we're seeing on our televisions and what is being experienced by so many of our friends and neighbors and colleagues doesn't have to continue to be the way it is. And so I hope you enjoyed it. It's a conversation with Professor Eddie Gloud Jr. He's the chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University, the author of several books, including the forthcoming book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America, and it's Urgent Lessons for Our Own. It's available in August. I want to thank all of you. I asked on Twitter for several recommendations of people uh, that you find uh, you enjoy their work on race in America the most. I got lots of names. I'm following lots of them. Professor Glad seemed like a great voice for this. And so uh, I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. At the end of the podcast, I'm going to do a quick reading from Glennon Doyle's new book, Untamed. And I posted some screenshots of the pages of this section from her book on racism online, but I know it can be tough to click on that and read and it's not you know, the optics of looking at a photograph of a page of a book aren't great. So I'm just going to read a short section that I think is really useful, uh, especially for white people who believe themselves to not be racist, but maybe have not taken that next step into being actively anti-racist and being a part of the solution. If you don't know the difference between that sort of passive, I'm not racist and active, I'm anti-racist, it would be a good thing for you to listen to. And if you already know that, uh, maybe listen to it anyway. I found reading it that... um some of the defensiveness that sometimes I feel when I want to bring my voice to, to activism in these conversations was highlighted by her as well and reminded me that I need to do the work uh, to be a part of this and be a part of the change and uh, to really kind of strip down those ideas of, of what it means to be an ally. So uh, I hope you stick around for that at the end of this conversation. But here's my uh, here's my conversation with Professor Gloud. That's what she said. A big thank you to Professor Gloud for taking the time to join this last minute. I felt like it was a, a necessary time to talk about this, and not uh, one of my regular podcasts. So I appreciate everybody who's listening in. Um, and you know what? What I wanted to start with is what I think I'm seeing as a different reaction instantly to the death of George Floyd and the current unrest in our country than maybe what we've seen even in recent years. Do you also feel as though there are more white voices and there are more people speaking about the root causes of what we're seeing as opposed to just the platitudes of, you know, racism is bad and let's all be together in kumbaya? To me, it feels like that from my perspective. I wonder to you if this feels different.
0: I, yeah, it does, actually. And, and I think there's a combination of factors of why that's the case. Um, it could very well be, you know, the, the reality of COVID-19. And that is that, you know, you have 40 million unemployed, uh, you know, rent control is about, you know, rent relief is about to expire, unemployment benefits about to expire, folks have lost loved ones. In some ways, uh, everything about the country has been turned upside down. So there is the reality of the global pandemic, there's the, the the brazenness of the murder. I mean, we all experienced in almost real felt felt like real time, right? The the public lynching of George Floyd, and it was so cruel, so monstrous. Uh, and so I think that that really hit folks. And then I think there's the kind of background to this. You know, you think about 2014 and Ferguson, and all of of the unrest uh, that we were experiencing as we had death after death by the hands of police, whether it was Tamir Rice, whether it was uh, uh, Michael Brown. And before that, Trayvon Martin and you know Walter Scott, we can go on. and, And it seems as if nothing changed between 2014 and 2016. So there's a different level of intensity that has everything to do, again, with COVID, has everything to do with the public nature of the lynching, and has everything to do with the fact that we were just here two years ago.
1: Yeah, we're building on that anger because nothing was truly released back then. Also, I think beyond the people who are disenfranchised because of COVID, there are people who may still be working, but they're sort of trapped, right, without um the usual distractions that you can turn to if you want to ignore what's going on um, and happening to people, if it's not affecting you as deeply. There's no sports and there's there's not mm-hmm. entertainment in the same way you can't leave your house and go engage in things. There are a couple things opening, but in a lot of areas, we're all still a very captive audience, right? Now, and I think that has something to do with the reactions as well. I skipped ahead a bit, and I want to ask you quickly to sort of tell us a little bit about where you matriculated from, and and where you studied, and how you came upon being um, being someone who focuses on race in America and African American studies.
0: Well, you know, I am a country boy from Moss Point, Mississippi, and very proud of of being from uh, that little that little town in in perhaps one of the most complicated states in the Union. Um, I went to Morehouse College, uh, the the uh, home of Martin Luther King Jr. So they are kind of drenched in Baptist waters, as it were, even though I was raised Catholic, um, and uh, introduced to, uh, I think, the, the, the extraordinary tradition of, of not only Morehouse College, but, but the tradition of advocacy around issues of race, uh, um, kind of the historic race man that St. Clair Drake and Horace Caton wrote about in Black Metropolis. Um, and so after graduating Morehouse with a, with a degree in political science, um, I went to Temple for a little bit and then found myself at Princeton where I did my Ph.D. Uh, and I did my Ph.D. in religion, but at Princeton, the religion department has a subfield called religion, ethics and politics. And it's a way of thinking about politics with an ethical lens, right, to kind of think about political theory in light of a broad set of ethical questions and so I've always wanted, I've always done that over, over the course of my graduate work in in the specific context of Black America, in, in light of the specific challenge that race presents to American democracy. And, you know, so, you know, I'm a rather, you know, a precocious guy. And you know, I, f- I finished and taught at Bowdoin College for a while and Amherst for a year and then came back to Princeton.
1: You know, it occurred to me as I've been kind of trying to educate myself and engage deeper into understanding our American history um, and also the very more recent lead up to the events of, of today, um, that there are a lot of questions about what we teach people in our country about our own history and that it should be a mandatory class at the collegiate level and the high school level and understanding this stuff a little bit better. It feels like if we were better educated on what came before us, we would be much Better and more efficient at handling what we're facing now. I'm curious for those who have not educated themselves when we talk about instead of the surface level of racism, the ideas everybody can grasp, which is everyone should be equal and treat each other with kindness and and opportunity. When we get lower into levels of systemic and institutionalized racism and how that disproportionately affects people of color in our country, can you explain what people mean when they say that? Because those words are thrown around without a lot of depth of of understanding for many. Right,
0: Right. So, you know, I think it's important to understand institutional racism as an attempt to try to get people to understand that racism is not just simply about individual acts of prejudice or discrimination, right? It's not, racism is not just simply when I specifically deny you access to my, uh, restaurant, or I say that you can't, uh, join this particular, uh, uh, club or, or the like, that racism is, is much more, uh, 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 much more than that, and it has something to do with the way in which a certain understanding of who's valued and who's devalued, and how that's evidenced in the very ways in which we arrange our society. Let me say it this way: It's I think it's better for us to think of racial inequality as a kind of cultural practice, Sarah. Right. So, so think about it. So when we say that uh, we need a certain form of policing, right? And we say we need a certain form of policing because we actually view this particular community as inherently criminal. Hmm. And so because we even, you know, we we watch our law and order, we watch cops, we have this understanding of these folk as criminals. So we are actually bought, we bought into this idea that we need a certain kind of aggressive policing of that particular community. So we end up with black communities over policed and underprotected. You know, I've said over and over again over the last few days that if you bracket the tear gas and you bracket the rubber bullets, the way you see those cops treating protesters is the way our community is policed every day. Every encounter is aggressive. Every encounter is contempt and insult. So when we were telling folks stop and frisk was a violation, we're talking about police pulling up, throwing our kids up against the wall, searching them, doing everything we're seeing now, right, uh, as we watch the pr- protest. But as a cultural practice, you think about when we talk about poverty in this country, sometimes we talk about poverty as punishment for folks who are lazy. Hmm. Right. Or we we talk about what well, we, we, we want to be. You know, we're not racist, but I don't want people, you know, moving into my neighborhood because it's going to uh, impact my property value. Or whenever we talk about integrated schools, we know what we mean when we talk about integrated schools, right? That is, the more black and brown kids are in the school, the the worse those schools are. So we're, we're very particular. I'm not racist. Right. But we're making choices day in and day out. Here's the example that I use all the time to try to explain what I mean. I believe the planet is in jeopardy. Climate climate change is real. I believe that with my heart. But if you come to my house, you would think I was a climate change denier. You look at my light bulbs. right? You look at my car. You look how we run the air conditioning. I mean, everything. You would be like, this dude doesn't believe climate change is real. Right. So oftentimes what happens is that through our choices, right, we reproduce certain kinds of understandings about who's valued more and who's not. So it's not just about explicit acts of discrimination. It's about a cultural practice that is rooted in a long history. You just think about it. My dad, not my grandfather, not my great grandfather, my dad could not vote until 1965. Right? My dad could not swim in pools in Mississippi. My colleague Cornell West, the guy who trained me, right, remembers jumping in a pool and all of the white kids jumping out and they emptied the pool right in front of it. My other teacher, Al Rabito, grew up without his father because a store owner on the coast of Mississippi shot him in the head because he spoke to him right aggressively about how he treated his wife. This is not distant past, right? We have still we still have people rock, walking around this country uh, with with these memories ingrained, right? And it's also ingrained in the very ways in which the society is structured. Does that help?
1: It does. And I'm curious for those who um, are, are maybe learn or perceive better with concrete current examples, because those are, you know, your own father. Those are not far off. But even today, there are plenty of examples of of ways that people of color are you know, prevented from generational wealth or are not given the same opportunities, um, whether that's, you know, redlining or the the things you mentioned about schooling or or properties. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some of the concrete ways that white people are unaware that they are being given advantages um, that, that You know, somebody who doesn't really believe that in this day, right now, 2020, there are still things in our country that white people get and can do that black people cannot. I'm trying to play devil's advocate on all the BS I'm seeing on the (laughs) internet. And there are people who still say that. They say, what are things, there's nothing that right now that women can't do or black people can't do. And they need examples, concrete ones.
0: Well, I mean, we can just look at at loans, right? Who gets access to, to certain loans, who gets access to certain interest rates. Uh, uh, we, there, you know, uh, banks have been like um, Wells Fargo and others have been implicated in in, in the housing collapse that led to uh, uh, the great recession and how African-Americans were disproportionately targeted in that regard. We can just look at policing, right? We can just look at policing uh, and, and really, <laughs> I put it this way. If, um, Princeton University was policed on a Thursday, Friday and Saturday, like certain black communities are policed, you would see the arrest rates of Princeton students going up exponentially because Mm -hmm. of the things that are going on there. Mm -hmm. Right. So part of what we're saying is that there are different. The differentiations between the difference between. Uh, uh arrest records has everything to do with the presence of police in certain communities and the absence of police in other communities and
1: the coverage well, of it right, right. Oh, the outrage if we saw what happens to so many people of color on the regular happening to a white princeton student it would be on every newspaper and on every television and the outrage would potentially create change in the way that was handled but not yeah. so
0: for the reverse there's studies showing for example uh, around names uh uh Study that showed that uh, uh, they tried to apply for jobs using, uh, you know, visibly African American names like Shakita and Jamal and da da da, and then using uh, the same resumes using uh, much more anglicized names, right? Or however we want to describe it. And those names, if the name was seen or read as decidedly African American, they were less likely to get the job, even though the trans, even though the CVs were exactly the same. So, so over and over again, we see in policing, we see in education in terms of funding, right? Most schools are funded by way of property taxes. And we know that the ways in which property are va- is valued in this country has everything to do with race. You mentioned redlining and the like, right? So dollars flowing into schools, public school education, right, actually reflects... Residential segregation in this country, which then means that if you get a poor education, you end up getting a poor job. If you get a bad job, you don't make enough money, which means you probably live in a poor neighborhood, which means your children are going to go to a poor school, which means they're more than likely they're going to get a bad job. You get the point.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I'm in these conversations. What I'm seeing a lot. And again, I mentioned it earlier, almost immediately, and in the past I've seen it takes weeks or even months to get to this point, it felt like it was immediate, was this asking of white people immediately to be a part of the solution, to say that there won't be any change to the policies and institutions that perpetuate generations of inequality until the people in power and the people who um, are not nearly as affected by it are as outraged what would you say to white people who bristle at the idea of even being addressed as a whole, who see speakers or articles demand help or change from quote unquote white people and respond with not all white people, or that's racist. Uh, if you're so sensitive as to not even be able to understand the effects and and the power of, of white people on this problem as a whole, even the ones who passively believe themselves to be not racist, but unfortunately are not actively non-racist, how do you get to those people?
0: You know, um, Sarah, I'm exhausted by those people. I understand. I really do. I understand what you're asking me. So let me, let me put it this way. The loud racists are easy. Yes. They're not the problem. We know who they are, right? It's those folks who are complicit with a society that is so profoundly unequal as ours by claiming that they're not actively racist. But they're benefiting from a society that's organized and arranged in this sort of way. So so let me put it this way. How can I put it? I'm trying to find the language and I'm going to reach for James Baldwin for a moment. Baldwin said. And I'm going to edit myself because I can't want to use the word on, on your podcast. Baldwin says, I'm not the N word. I've never been the N word. You invented it. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, why did you need it in the first place? And until we figure out why you needed the N-word, I'm going to give your problem back to you. You're probably the word not me. This is a paraphrase of Baldwin. And what he meant when he was saying that, that the problem isn't black folk. Of course, we have our knuckleheads. Of course, we have people making bad choices. Of course, we're human after all. Right. But the problem is this ideology of whiteness that people can hide behind, that we've organized our society uh, in such a way. That if you're white, you are valued in a different sort of way. And you cannot tell me that we have somehow uh, rid ourselves of what was the organizing principle for the majority of this country's history. The last piece of major legislation of the the Black Freedom Struggle, the last piece of major legislation was the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which they never really enforced. 12 years later, they elected Ronald Reagan, who was elected to dismantle it all. 1965, 1964. 1965 is the Voting Rights Act. That's the first moment that some political scientist, uh, uh, Judith Sklar from Harvard, said that is probably the moment when America became a true, genuine democracy, when it allowed all of its citizens to vote in 1965. Here we are twenty in 2020, right? still grappling with the legacy. We're not 50, year, 50 plus years out. So when, when folks said, I'm not, stop generalizing, right? That's an old move, right? To keep people from talking about the ways in which structures and cultural practices reproduce what I call the value gap. I'm so sick and tired of having to convince white folk that what's happening to black folk is real. Even when we have video footage, they still do this.
1: Right. Or they use that as an example to point to as one singular tragedy. Which makes no pattern. sense. Right, it's easy to point to George Floyd and say, there's no way to excuse this. So I'll make it an exception, a singular tragedy, a breaking of the rules. Otherwise, the rules are always followed. And if you follow the rules, you'll be fine, except for him. But he was just the one. It's not a pattern. And it's certainly not a virus that infects the whole that needs to be, you know, completely over.
0: Right. right. Yeah, they, you easy know.
1: To I'm going to paraphrase you. Um In in an interview recently did, you said, those of us who have learned the lessons of our history, those of us who want to imagine America differently, we have to start building a world where these kinds of beliefs have no corner to breathe. Vice President Biden needed to say, what we need to do is hold police accountable. What we need to do is decriminalize a whole host of actions that force these encounters. We need to change the way police see black men and women, which is rooted in a deep cultural ethos. We need to address the fundamental underlying conditions of resource deprived communities where people don't have a living wage, where they don't have decent education, where they don't have decent housing. All of this is rooted in the belief that America is a white nation. If we have to wait on those folk who are committed to that, America will continue to be this ugly place. And you said in a different interview similarly, I want to build the world where the kinds of commitments certain voters hold have no quarter to breathe, but I'm not going to spend my energy trying to convince them to hold different commitments. So I'm curious, if we know that certain people and certain voters do believe that America should be a white nation, and maybe are even in fear of equality, becoming uprising, becoming they're taking my jobs and my spaces and my schools and my houses. If those people cannot be moved off of their commitments, do you believe that we can still get to a place where their commitments have no space to breathe?
0: Yes. You know, if, it, if it's the case that if we can organize a society where whiteness is not an advantage or disadvantage, and blackness is not an advantage or a disadvantage. It's just who you are. You can revel in the kind of uh, the particularity of who you how you understand yourself. Um, I think it can happen. Right. I think we could we can. Um, let, let me give you a sense of what what's informing those formulations. We only have a finite amount of civic energy. Um, and we spend so much of our civic energy trying to convince people who hold noxious views that they shouldn't hold them. And these are the folks who have had the country by the throat since its founding. You know, you think about the Civil War and Reconstruction, and you think about uh, how uh, uh, progressive forces had to figure out what how were they going to compromise with the South and and and, and kind of reboot the Union, as it were. um, And who had to bear the brunt of the compromise? Hmm. I wonder. Right. And then you think about mid 20th century. Another period of moral reckoning and and the ways in which uh, folks, uh, shall we say, had to adjust to try to figure out how to speak to those so-called to the so-called silent majority, to the forgotten Americans, to those Reagan Democrats. And look what happened. Who had to bear the brunt of the compromise? And it keeps us on this damn racial hamster wheel. So part of what I think we need to be doing is to try to figure out how to build a more just world. What does it mean to argue for Medicare for all? What does it mean to make the claim that we should fund education in a way that's not tethered to pro- uh, to, to to property taxes? How do we begin to think about uh, police reform, where we're not just talking about uh, you know training cops, but and and but we're talking about decriminalization, right? Because you can damn near trip in the United States and break a law, right? That creates all of this contact. You think about Michael Brown is dead because he. Uh, he was walking in the middle of the street. <laughs> That's what started the encounter, right? Or you think about Sarah, Sandra Bland; she's dead because she didn't have the cash to pay for a basic bail after a tra- traffic stop, right? So we can begin to think about policies that like-minded people, because we outnumber these folk, right? Policies that like-minded people can can begin to 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 implement that we can change the way. How can I put this? Change the frame. Of how we live together, and then when people see that their noxious positions don't accord them any special standing, then maybe they'll leave them alone, leave leave them to this leave them to the side. But that's I'm you not trees sure. run out of the power to abuse them and abuse us.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You point to some of those things. Uh, I was just remembering the other day since George Floyd's interaction with the police began based on the belief that he had a a, a counterfeit <laughs> check. Um, $20 bill. I, yeah, I actually paid with a counterfeit $20 bill at a gas station years ago. I got his payment from a bar that I did an appearance at. They gave me just a stack of 20s. And I don't know if the owner knew they were counterfeit and had received them and just turned them, you know, passed them back along or what. But I paid. Uh, they used the little you know, light thing. They told me it was counterfeit. I was mortified. I paid with my credit card and I left, right? That's it. Uh, And that's what happens often when young white people get caught with a joint or my, you know, my Cornell track team drinking beers on the beach in California during our spring break trip. Oh, you guys are the future of America. Run along now. Let us take these beers, you underage people drinking in public and you, you get on home,
0: right? You know, Sarah, when my son was a teenager, a friend of mine, our neighbor, uh, his son was brought back to the house, had been caught smoking weed and the like. And, and my son was upstairs and here I am, an Ivy League professor and the like. I yelled and told him to come downstairs and he runs downstairs looking like a, a suburban kid in pajamas and sneakers. And I take him and I, I grab him and I said, look down the street. And he looks down the street and he says, oh my God, Charlie, da 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 da. And I said, they wouldn't bring you home to me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You wouldn't come home to me. And he's looking. I said, "I just want you to understand that, right?" Or think about what we—those images we saw in Harlem of how they were policing social distance in Harlem, right?
1: Right. How, versus Harlem, Harlem, versus Harlem. Michigan with versus. assault rifles up in the faces, spitting in the faces of police, and there's no tear gas, and there's no pepper spray, and there's no rubber bullets. Versus Central Park, right.
0: Right, so, so this is part of what happens when you have a society that's organized along the lines where some people, because of the color of their skin, are valued more than some, valued more than others.
1: And presume to be a threat because if you fear someone before you've even learned anything about them, then the way you handle them will be different. And that's the daily microaggressions and the stereotypes and the jokes. And people don't understand how those create even subconsciously our view of others before they've done anything. And Mm -hmm. that will interact, that will change how we interact with them. Um, Mm -hmm. so for your book, begin again, um, you write about we're in the after times and that we've been here before. For James Baldwin, it was the wake of the civil rights movement, uh, after, you know, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. and others are killed. Um, it's that idea of, uh, two steps forward, one step backlash, right? If you take movements forward for the equality and freeing of people, whether that be LGBTQ or women or, or black people, there will be a pushback. And it feels like for you, you're arguing that the, The time of President Obama and having the leader of our country be a black man has resulted in the election of of Trump and the after times where we're now now paying the price, supposedly, quote unquote, for the progress that we made. How do you how do you is it inevitable or at some point do we not have to take the one step backlash when we make the progress?
0: Well, I mean, I think what we have to do is finally confront the ugliness that's at the heart of who we are. Right. I mean, American ideology, the American ideology, our self-conception, our idea of who we are as an example of of democracy already achieved is so efficient in keeping us uh, in willful ignorance about what we actually do. It's almost like, you know, America is like the Lost Boys, you know, we want to do everything we want to do, but don't we don't want to be held accountable. It's never never land, you know. And so part of what we have to do is kind of tell an honest story about the ugliness of who we are. I mean, we see in these protests, for example, in Birmingham, people are attacking Confederate statues. We see them going, uh, and defacing, you know, auction blocks, uh, you know, historical sites of, of white supremacy in some ways. Um, we need to confront that so that we can release ourselves into a different kind of way of being American, right? And, and get out of this idea that we are an example of democracy already achieved, or that we are always already on the road to a more perfect union. No, there's there's a deep, dark underside to who we are. And and, and Baldwin's brilliance, I think, is that he said that, that, you know, the messiness of our interior lives evidences itself in the messiness of our social arrangements, right? That we're not that, that something about who we are as individuals and as a country right, is, is off kilter, is deformed, is distorted. So part of the work that we have to do in this moment, I'm insisting, uh, if we're not going to get on this hamster wheel again, uh, is, is tell a different story and implement policies that fundamentally, I think, address the in- inequalities that have organized our society. I don't know if that's going to happen. A close reading of our history suggests that we're going to fail. But I'm a reader of, of Samuel Beckett and Wordsworth. Ho. He says, fail again, fail better.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. I do feel like we're witnessing right now more of the truth of the experience for people of color in our country and the reaction that so many of us have, which is deeply flawed, even if we come from the best place, is this is not America. I mean, this isn't us. And what people of color keep trying to say is this is us. This has always been us. It just doesn't meet your doorstep. It doesn't come to you. So you don't acknowledge it. And then you would go on with the idea that America is this perfect democracy and that we've achieved this level of equality and, and, mm-hmm. and fairness that we never have had and continue not to have. Uh, but if you don't bring it to yourself, or you don't bring yourself to the spaces where that inequality exists, you're going to be able to convince yourself that what we're seeing right now is not America. When, in fact, for many people, this is every every day. Um, you know, the Me Too movement has felt like a giant pivot point. In the struggle for for harassed and violated and silenced women to be heard, and it's um, sort of a notable before and after that marks a point after which I hope we can't go back. Uh, I, I know that things can shift again, but at, at least we'll have this moment to be able to point to and and some policies and laws that have resulted from it. Is there anything we can glean from how that came about after generations of fighting? that can inform the fight for race equality and this moment in time and how we can make this feel like as big of a pivot point?
0: Um, I I think they're, 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 they're intimately connected. Although we know we still have some problems here, uh, some significant problems. I mean, you just think about the reaction to, to, to around George, George Floyd and and the reactions around Breonna Taylor uh, that black women are being black women and girls are being uh, uh, killed and incarcerated at at alarming rates. And and sometimes it feels, and Kimberly Crenshaw and others have been making this argument, as if we're not as outraged when when it's happening to Black women. Um, I think there is a sense in which uh, uh, access to power, understanding one's organizing and mobilizing capacity, and and really uh, acting in a concerted and deliberate way to address the circumstances. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing, that we've seen in the Me Too movement is the way in in which the movement has toppled some of the most powerful men uh, in the country, right? And I think that that involves, right, an explicit engagement with the power of everyday ordinary women and the power of those women who have gained access to the corridors of power. Does that make Mm. sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. In order for all women to be served, the women who are at the very top levels had to decide that it was worth fighting for and taking right. down people who could affect their careers and could affect their money and, and their success and decide it was still worth it. So in your mind, then we would need to find the people of color who are at, at the top levels. And by the way, I've seen... um um Black friends, right uh, on the internet. I'm not a person of color. I'm a black person. Does it does it matter to you in these conversations to be explicit about saying black people versus people of color? Is it more useful to use a catch all that acknowledges that, that there's a stark difference between white and any color, or how do you but, think
0: about that? You know, well, I think I think it, it all depends on what we're talking about. Um, when we talk about, remember, there was a person of color uh, keeping uh, yeah one of the other officers is. yeah. Of all, keeping everyday ordinary citizens from, from preventing Officer Chauvin from continuing to strangle George uh, Floyd. So oftentimes when we say people of color, we, we're collapsing histories, hmm. collapsing different experiences. Uh, and we need to be mindful when we do this, uh, because it, it becomes a kind of generalization that only makes sense over and against a, a particular understanding of whiteness that, that homogenizes uh, people of different backgrounds, you know. So yeah. we just need to be careful when we use the phrase what we're trying to signal. Absolutely. That, that's that's so, all I would say.
1: So would you say in relation to what uh, you just said about those highest level women deciding it mattered and, and the male allies alongside them who fought for them, um, we, need, we need Black people who are at the highest levels to be willing to put their economics and status and everything on the line to make things right and then white allies alongside them to do so because it's interesting to see so many companies posting the black square or a brief statement and someone asking what does your board of directors look like right (laughs) if we went into your company would we see the results of this ethos or is it something you put up when when necessary during a time of crisis and um is is that your is that your point in terms of how we could look at this as a pivot point similar to me too
0: well, well, I, you know, I, I, I was just being really descriptive, not necessarily kind of recommending that this is the approach. I'm thinking that what we need is a grassroots movement of everyday ordinary people on the ground to begin to bring pressure to bear, uh, in the streets and at the ballot box in order to change the way in which we go about our business in this country. Let's be very clear. When Toronto Burke was organizing, uh, hashtag MeToo in, 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 in outside of the purview of, of cameras and Pharaoh, uh, uh, no one really was really paying attention mm-hmm. in some ways, but she was doing some extraordinary work. Uh, and then when suddenly Pharaoh drops his articles and white women become the object or the subject of concern, uh, things move. So I can't see that being necessarily transferable.
1: You see right. what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. You see what I mean? So part- yeah, empathy came because it was white women who were victimized.
0: Right. So part of the work that we have to do is to just is not. How can I put this, Sarah? We have to move to an understanding of democracy that empowers everyday ordinary people, the working class person in Appalachian mountains, the, to to uh, the working person or the poor person uh, in the Delta of Mississippi, to uh, the poor working person in, in in rural Texas and rural California or in rural Oregon or Utah. Right? We have to begin to understand that that when the, when everyday ordinary people are mobilized and engaged in solidaristic efforts to build a more just world, we have the power. We don't have to wait on the powerful to do something for us. Part of what we have to do is disrupt this philanthropic charitable approach to justice as if we're waiting for, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg or, or the, the founder of Twitter or, or Bill Gates to give us just a more just world. No, the demos, everyday ordinary people, we got to do it. And if we push from below in light of the power that we have, that is organizing in the workspace, organizing politically, and insisting on a kind of way of being together culturally, we can change this place if we can, if we want to. And we don't need to wait on Jay-Z or Beyonce or Oprah.
1: Yeah, I mean it certainly feels like um Social media has removed a lot of the gatekeepers that prevented voices from being heard because it used to be that you had to be hired by and then voice elevated by a newspaper or a television or something for anybody to hear. And now there's this mobilization of the everyday person by virtue of social media and, and, and being able to have shared experiences, you know, discussed and those dispersed across different companies and spaces. Duray McKesson has turned people to eight can't wait, eight the number can't wait dot org, uh, data showing that these policies that change can decrease police violence by over 70%. Uh, That is obviously one step pushing for very specific police reform. What are the other next steps? Obviously, for white people, learn your history, educate yourself, uh, have conversations, talk to problematic white people, don't ask black people how to fix it for you, do your own work in your own communities, and then reach out and, and start to know and care about other communities. What else can we do?
0: I, you know, I, I want to just emphasize that we need to begin to talk about decriminalization and accountability as well, right? And 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 DeRay and and Brittany Packnett Cunningham is they're she, they're both pushing that organization, Campaign Zero, is pushing for this as well as some other organizations are are doing some really incredible work in this regard. Um, but but I I think when we talk about addressing qualified immunity, which makes it damn near impossible to to prosecute a uh, uh, bad acting cops. Uh, and when we talk about decriminalization, we need to begin to to diminish the number of encounters that everyday ordinary citizens have with the police. I think that's important for us to, uh, to, to 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 think about and to advocate for. I would want to also say that what we have to do is begin to have this this really intense conversation about healthcare. Right? What COVID-19 has revealed is that when you tether healthcare to to employment right? You really place people in a precarious situation. And Obamacare did not resolve that problem, right? When we look at the decline in GDP over the course of the coronavirus, the the, the, the failing profits of the healthcare industry have contributed mightily to that decline in GDP. That's, that's sick when you think about it, right? That people are profiting on the basis of folk getting sick, right? So what we have to begin to do is to think about uh healthcare as a right and I'm not I'm not a I'm not I am not i am not i do not approach politics as a as a sports fan, right? So this is not Bernie Sanders, me advocating for Bernie Sanders to be the nominee uh, uh in the context of a, of, of, of a brokered convention. I don't that's that's silliness to me. But we need to start having a conversation about changing the healthcare system of this country. We need to start building what we can call a public infrastructure of care. Right? Uh, because for the last 40 plus years, we have literally been tear, ripping apart the social safety net of this country and in com- and combine that notion of, of, of a public infrastructure of care with the idea of a living wage. People are busting their behinds out here, working 40, 50, 60 hours a week and barely can make ends meet after they pay their rent, after they pay the house note. Right. College costs are exploding. So the idea of a future for their children is no longer guaranteed. We need to begin to pay people for their work because everyday ordinary Americans are are really are treading water, just trying to keep our noses above water. Right. So I think there's a there's a conversation that we all need to be having, Uh, not just simply educating yourself about uh, uh, the plight of white, of black folk. Right. Empathy can only take us so far. We need to begin to imagine a different way of being together.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean all of that. It's big, it's big, massive. Policy change, it's deep infrastructural change. And until we address and acknowledge, like you said before, that the system is far from perfect, we have, you know, very little chance of changing it. And I think to your point about qualified immunity, uh, what we need to do is express to people and share other examples of institutions that allow for morality failings because the defense of the institution is stronger than the desire to point out the flaws within it, whether that's the Catholic Church or in sports, Penn State and Michigan State and Baylor where you know either pedophilia or rape or or um, sexual assault are covered up because protecting the institution that you care so deeply about feels more important to you than rooting out the things that taint it from within and we feel that way so strongly about these things that matter to us that we defend them even as we are looking at the things about them that are deeply flawed. Um, and, you know, that's the same case, of course, with policing. Uh, I know you have to run because you're a very busy man. I thank you so much for making time for this in the last minute. And it's just incredibly uh, useful and educational. And, and thank you so much for sharing your voice.
0: Sarah, I just would want to say one thing, one last thing. First of all, amen to what you just said. Amen. You had me over here smiling. <laughs> uh, but the, but one last thing, and that is, you know, one of the most insidious features of our current way of living is that we have witnessed an all-out assault on our imagination. People think that we can only have what we have, right? The only thing that can exist is what has already existed. And the moment we concede to that, we're done. Stick a fork in us, Mm. right? Ralph Waldo Emerson says, God speaks to us through our imaginations. That's what I love that line. God speaks to us through our imaginations. And whenever I say that to my students, I, I say, well, if that's true, then what is the devil doing? If we can't imagine ourselves being different, then we never will be. The imagination is the battleground.
1: It's incredibly powerful and, and extremely true, especially when it comes to envisioning our country looking different and being being run differently. Uh, thank awesome. you so much, Professor. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Take care now. So I hope you guys liked that conversation. I thought it was... Super smart informed by him, of course, because, uh, that's, that's why I had him on. But I hope that you, uh, got something from it. And I think we can all take some of those action steps, go to those websites, listen to the people who are the thought leaders on this stuff and follow their lead, especially about the idea of imagination and seeing our country run differently. I want to read this, this section from Glennon Doyle's new book, Untamed. Um, if you're unfamiliar with her, she got popular originally as sort of a Christian mommy blogger, wrote about, uh, her life and then her life took a giant pivot. She met uh soccer legend Abby Wambach and they fell in love and she changed her whole life, uprooted her life as as a Christian mommy blogger and with a husband and kids and and uh and has become this incredible voice for understanding these these moments of great change within our lives, but I thought that this segment of her book uh on racism was really powerful. Here's a little bit of it. Soon after that conversation with my friend, I sat on my family room couch and patted a spot to my left and one to my right. I said to my daughters, come here, girls. They sat down and looked up at me. I told them that while they were asleep, a man who was white had walked into a church and shot and killed nine people who were black. Then I told my daughters about a black boy their brother's age who was walking home and was chased down and murdered. I told them that the killer said he thought the boy had a gun, but what the boy really had was a bag of Skittles. Ama said, why did that man think Trayvon's candy was a gun? I said, I don't think he really did. I think he just needed an excuse to kill. We sat with all of us for a while. They asked more questions. I did my best. Then I decided that we had talked about villains for long enough. We needed to talk about heroes. I went to my office to find a particular book. I pulled it down from the shelf, came back to the couch, and sat between them again. I opened the book, and we read about Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, John Lewis, Fannie Lou Hamer, Diane Nash, and Daisy Bates. We looked at pictures of civil rights marches, and we talked about why people march. Someone once said that marching is praying with your feet, I told them. Ama pointed to a white woman holding a sign marching in a sea of black and brown people. Her eyes popped and she said, Mama, look, would we have been marching with them like her? I fixed my mouth to say, of course, of course we would have, baby. But before I could say it, Tish said, no, Amma, we wouldn't have been marching with them back then. I mean, we're not marching now. I stared at my girls as they looked up at me. I thought of my dad in a therapist's office all those years ago as if my girls had turned to me and asked, Mama, how do you imagine we might be inadvertently contributing to our country's sickness? A week later, I was reading Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous essay, Letter from a Birmingham Jail, and I came across this. I must confess that over the last few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klan, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. This was the first time I had encountered language that defined the kind of person I was in the world. I was a white person who imagined herself to be on the side of civil rights because I was a good person who strongly believed in equality as the right idea. But the white woman Amma had pointed to in that photograph wasn't staying home and believing. She was showing up. When I looked at her face, she didn't look nice at all. She looked radical, angry, brave, afraid, tired, passionate, resolute, regal, and a little bit scary. I imagined myself to be the kind of white person who would have stood with Dr. King because I respect him now. Close to 90% of white Americans approve of Dr. King today. Yet while he was alive and demanding change, only about 30% approved of him. The same rate of white Americans who approve of Colin Kaepernick today. So if I want to know how I'd felt about Dr. King back then, I can't ask myself how I feel about him now. Instead, I have to ask myself, how do I feel about Kaepernick now? If I want to know how I'd have felt about the Freedom Riders back then, I can't ask myself how I feel about them now. Instead, I have to ask myself, how do I feel about Black Lives Matter now? If I want to know how I'd have shown up in the last civil rights era, I have to ask myself, how am I showing up today in this civil rights era? I decided to read every book I could to get my hands on about race in America. I filled my social media feeds with writers and activists of color. It became very clear very quickly how strongly my social media feeds shaped my worldview. With a feed filled with white voices, faces that look like my own, and articles that reflected experiences like mine, it was easy to believe that for the most part things were fine. Once I committed myself to beginning each day by reading the perspectives of black and brown people, I learned that everything was and always had been quite far from fine. I learned about rampant police brutality, the preschool to prison pipeline, the subhuman conditions of immigrant detainment centers, the pillaging of native lands. I began to widen. I was unlearning the whitewashed version of American history I'd been indoctrinated into believing. I was discovering that I was not who I imagined myself to be. I was learning that my country was not what I had been taught it was. This experience of learning and unlearning reminded me of getting sober from addiction. When I really started to listen and think more deeply about the experiences of people of color and other marginalized people in our country, I felt like I did when I first quit drinking, increasingly uncomfortable as the truth agitated my comfortable numbness. I felt ashamed as I began to learn all the ways my ignorance and silence had hurt other people. I felt exhausted because there was so much more to unlearn, so many amends to be made and so much work to do. Just like in my early days of sobriety from booze, in my early days of waking up to white supremacy, I felt shaky, jumpy, and agitated as I slowly surrendered the privilege of not knowing. It was a painful unbecoming. Eventually, it became time to speak up. I started sharing the voices I was reading and speaking out against the racism of America's past and the bigotry and strategic divisiveness of the current administration. Every time I did this, people got pissed off. I felt okay about this because it seemed to be I was pissing off the right people. She goes on to talk about being asked to participate in an activist group led by women of color. They wanted her and another white woman to plan an online webinar for other white women to help teach them the work of racial justice. And so they started planning all sorts of things and they started uh finding ways to to make sure that they confronted white with women with, you know, whether they were getting into anti-racism and She goes on to say, it felt important because black leaders were telling me that the ignorance and emotionality of well-intentioned white women was a major stumbling block toward justice. I knew what they meant. I'd seen it happen again and again. If white women didn't learn that our experiences in early racial sobriety are predictable, we think our reactions are unique. So we enter race conversations far too early, and we lead with our feelings and confusion and opinions. When we do this, we are centering ourselves. So we inevitably get put back where we belong, which is far from the center. This makes us even more agitated. We're used to people showing gratitude for our presence, so being unappreciated hurts our feelings. We double down. We say things like, at least I'm trying. No one is even grateful. All I do is I get attacked. People become upset because saying I am being attacked doesn't accurately describe what is happening. People are just telling us the truth for the first time. That truth feels like an attack because we have been protected by comfortable lies for so long. We are dumbfounded. We feel like we're always saying the wrong things and that people are always getting upset about that. But I don't think people become upset just because we say the wrong things. I think people are upset and we are defensive, hurt and frustrated because we have fallen into the trap of believing that becoming racially sober is about saying the right thing instead of becoming the right thing. That showing up is based in performing instead of transforming. The way we show up reveals that we haven't yet done the studying and listening required to become the right thing before trying to say the right thing. We are mugs filled to the brim, and we keep getting bumped. If we're filled with coffee, coffee will spill out. If we're filled with tea, tea will spill out. Getting bumped is inevitable. If we want to change what spills out of us, we have to work to change what's inside of us. How do I enter the race conversation is the wrong question in the early days of racial sobriety. We are not talking about a conversation to enter publicly as much as a conversion to surrender to privately. Whether we are in it to perform or to transform becomes evident by the way we take up space. When a white woman who is unbecoming does show up publicly, she does so with a humble respect, which is a way of being that is quiet, steady and yielding, not with hand-wringing shame because self-flagellation is just another way to demand attention. She has feelings, but she interrogates them within instead of opposing them on others because there is a deep understanding that how she feels is irrelevant when people are dying. So she goes on to talk about her experience trying to put on this webinar, and you can read the full book. But I want to just finish with how she finishes this chapter because I'll leave it to you to go read a lot more about it. Uh, there's a lot of power in what she writes about internalized misogyny from society and internalized racism from society and how we are willing to confront one and maybe not accept the other. Uh, but I'll I'll let you guys go go find it. And I put it on my Twitter and my Facebook and everything. But here's how she finishes the chapter. Uh, because this was written a couple years ago and just published a couple months ago. I'm afraid to put these thoughts inside a book that will not be in people's hands until a year from now. I know that I will later read this and see the racism in it that I cannot see right now. But I think of the words of Dr. Maya Angelou. Quote, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Doing our best now is an active thing, and so is knowing better. We don't show up and then wait to magically know better. We show up, and then when we are corrected, we keep working. We listen hard so that we can know better next time. We seek out teachers so we can know better next time. We let burn our ideas about how good and well-meaning we are so we can become better next time. Learning to know better is a commitment. We will only know better if we continue unbecoming. So I will commit to showing up with deep humility and doing the best I can. I will keep getting it wrong, which is the closest I can come to getting it right. When I am corrected, I will stay open and keep learning. Not because I want to be the wokest woke whoever woke, but because people's children are dying of racism and there is no such thing as other people's children. Hidden racism is destroying and ending lives. It's making police officers kill black men at three times the rate of white men. It's making lawmakers limit funding for clean water and poison children. It's making doctors allow black women to die during or after childbirth at three to four times the rate of white women. It's making school officials suspend and expel black students at three times the rate of white students. It's making judges incarcerate black drug users at nearly six times the rate of white drug users. And because of my complicity in this system that dehumanizes others, it is dehumanizing me. The fact that the programmed poison of racism was pumped into us may not be our fault, but getting it out is sure as hell our responsibility. So when the moment comes, whether it's about my family, my community, or my country, when the energy shifts to me and the question is asked of me, how do you imagine you might be contributing to our sickness? I want to stay in the room. I want to feel, to imagine, to listen, to work. I want to turn myself inside out to help clear our air. The whole chapter is really good. That was just a part of it. I think it's super important for white people to read things like that, to acknowledge where and, and how they connect to things like that and then be different and be better. Thanks so much for listening to this. I hope you made it all the way to the end. I think it's important. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me.
0: Well, that's what she said.